want to tell you about one of our partners, Quetzal Education Consulting. Quetzal Education Consulting is a queer, black, and indigenous women-owned firm offering anti-racist consulting, PD, coaching, keynotes, workshops, and more. Their newly released Abolitionist Teaching Workshop series coaches and prepares teachers to further develop abolitionist practices in the classroom. Find out why they have been called The Future of Educational Justice by Dr. Bettina Love. You can book a free consultation with Quetzal by calling 510-397-8011 or visiting quetzalec.com. That is Q-U-E-T-Z-A-L-E-C.com. And if you mention you heard about them through Two Dope Teachers, you will receive a 5% discount on their Abolitionist Teaching PD series. Once again, you can book them by visiting quetzalec.com on their Connect With Us page. Hello, and welcome to the exit interview. I'm here with the preeminent Asia Lions. Hey, everybody. How's it going? We are doing good. And I am Kevin Adams, the co-host of the exit interview. And we have an amazing interview for the people tonight, Asia. Do you want to tell the people about our guest? So we're um, interviewing Desmond Williams today. Um, and Desmond's been on Two Dope Teachers already. So he has come already vetted, amazing. And he's back to share his story about um, his work in schools as a principal, as an educator uh, in the classroom, um, some of his reflections around racial battle fatigue, and also what he's doing now with uh, his organization, Nylinka. So yeah, we're just gonna listen to his stories and always a pleasure to talk to someone from Detroit as a fellow Detroiter. That's right, that, represent the D all day, all day. All day, that made me happy. But so yeah, Asia, hold on, before we get into the interview, I tell you, one of my friends, he told me Detroit is known as Midnight. Have you ever heard this? No, I have not. And so here's what he told me, he said it was Midnight because on the Underground Railroad, if you made it to Detroit, you were considered at midnight. And if you made it across the border to Canada, it was dawn. So I don't know if this is true, but that's what I heard, that Detroit is known as midnight. Maybe to you, to your friend it is. I guess so. I've never heard this story. So I, I got to do research, exit interview, people, do some research, get in your Googles, let us know if that is is the case or or, or is my boy... As we say, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, he probably, he probably Captain. He might uh, be Kevin. Yeah. He's white, so so we never know. You know how these white boys get. <laughs> Google it. Google, yeah. Google is it. He from De- is he from Detroit? Or no, he's home? from Denver. <laughs> Bro, listen. Okay, never. All At first, right, when he is- started, well, hold on, Asia, because you know when a white boy says Detroit's known as midnight, I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> what you what you say? <laughs> what, what you saying? <laughs> sir, 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 sir. No, no. yes. T- uh, tell your friend, ne- never mind. We, we, we don't get into it. We don't find out. We will we let, let the people know. I'm sure the exit interview audience will let us know. 
They will. But in the meantime, let's go ahead and get this interview started. Let's get to it. How is everybody doing? We are back with our guest, Dr. Desmond Williams. Is it Dr.? Just Desmond Williams. Just Desmond yeah. Williams. I, I always give, I, what I always say, it's like a hood doctorate, you know, like anybody who's dropping knowledge is a doctor in my mind. Like it, you don't need the degrees, but uh, we are here with uh, Desmond Williams and he is, is going to go through his story of his exit interview um, in Asia. You want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Hi everyone. Welcome to season two of the exit interview. So, um, you know, as always, we invite dope folks onto our podcast um, to share their story. And so this today is no different. Uh, Desmond Williams has been on to dope teachers in the past, and he's come back and graced us with his presence for the exit interview. So as always, we just want to um, ask, like, what's your story? And the same questions we always ask everyone and just share with us. So starting off, tell us about your educational journey. Where did you teach? Who, what grades, which courses, whatever. Go ahead and get started. Well, um, Asia and Kevin, thank you for having me. Um, I think this conversation is, is so important just given um, I was doing some reading and 4.8% of all teacher jobs or teaching vacancies, um, teacher jobs are open right now. Yep. which is the highest it's, it's ever been since the Bureau of Labor and Statistics has kept such data. Hmm. So I think this is such an important uh, conversation. And I, I remember being a principal and when teachers leave who are not being promoted, right? My whole thing was, um, you're not gonna leave here unless you're getting a promotion. You can't leave my building and take a lateral move somewhere. So when you, when you, conduct exit interviews you want people to to be honest and and kind of square dealing and and why they're deciding to you know take um other steps but to to answer your question directly um this would be year 20 for me i started teaching in washington dc i was um, fortunate enough to get accepted into a um a alternative teaching certification program um, called the DC Teaching Fellows, which was under the New Teacher Project. And that year, there were cohorts in, um, here in DC, uh, Houston, Philadelphia, and I think, um, I think uh, Atlanta, if I'm not mistaken. But um, I was a special education teacher. I taught uh, third, fourth, and fifth grade special education students at that time you know, you taught full-time and I was in a full-time master's program at George Washington University. And I just remember being at like an amazing school with amazing teachers, amazing community. Our school was, um, this was a DC public school and we were about 45% um, Latinx and maybe like half of a quarter of a percent white and the other 54% African-Americans, but just a thriving community, lots of great teachers, um, young teachers, veteran teachers, um, people of different um, racial and ethnic backgrounds. And it was a great opportunity for me to learn 
and cut my teeth and become a good teacher. So. Yeah. And you were there for how long? And before you, you said you you were, were an administrator. So like, love to hear about that too. Well, so that Raymond is the beginning of my career. Um, my principal at the time was a um, black male by the name of Timothy Williams, who was um, old enough to be my father, but there was all, there were rumors that he was going to retire after my second year. Um, I mean, I, I don't know how much time we have, but th th there's always that, um, I think for a lot of men in education, I remember the middle of my second year, um, going to catch up with some of my fraternity brothers and we hadn't gotten together in a long time. And, um, I hadn't seen some people in a long time. So we're, you know, getting together at a friend's house and one of my line brothers pulls up in a BMW, um, another bro that I really respect, um, pulls up in a, in a Range Rover. Um, another one of my line brothers pulls up in a brand new Pathfinder. And I'm like, these are, you know, my friends, we went to school together, but mm -hmm. my grades were just as high as any, I've seen their GPAs. I've, That's right. <laughs> I've seen your transcripts. Like I know how we got down to get through this process. Like, well, what, what decisions did I make wrong? Because I was catching a bus and walking. <laughs> right. And I actually purposely chose to teach at Raymond because it was only like a nine block walk from my house. So the itch um, to make more money was a thing. So to answer your question, Asia, I left Raymond after two years and went to um, a private school for children with special needs because it was a um, not a big jump, but it was a bigger jump in pay. Um, and the school was looser, which gave me a, it was disorganized, which gave me the opportunity to kind of think about um, cutting my teeth, doing something very different. So um, I was there for two years. I taught for that two year period, but I was also a special education um, coordinator that fourth year. After that, I went to work downtown for DC public schools um, in the office of special education. And then I took a job at another private um, school for children with special needs. And that was my first foray into, um, into administration. Um, and then I kind of toggled back and forth. I had an experience where, um, well, let me say this. I, I enjoyed my time in administration, but, um, I made moves for the money, you know, like it was very tough, um, making $42,000 a year and driving a fire engine red, um, Volkswagen Jetta, when, when people who you feel that you're equally yoked with intellectually and talent wise are driving Range Rovers. Like it's really tough, um, particularly in a place like Washington DC where you're judged by um, such outward appearances. And I think that's the most diplomatic way that I can, I can say that. So I don't think I was in retrospect particularly ready for administration, but financially it was a right move. And it was something that um, my family, specifically my parents, because I was single, it was something that they needed from me. 
um, even though at the time they didn't know it. It was like, oh, you can send us money. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big. That's kind of a big deal. Keep it. Keep mm-hmm. it coming, right? Where they wouldn't have asked for it if I didn't have it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, that's so interesting. I think that, and Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you're the first person we've had on the show that's actually talked about like financial making these moves for the financial reasons, right? Not to say that you're the first person to think about the financial piece, right? <laughs> yeah. But just to admit that out loud, and I appreciate that honesty. And to say like, you don't you don't believe that you were prepared or ready for an administrative role, right? But like financially in a place like DC, which sounds a lot like Detroit, to be honest with you, when mm-hmm. it talks about outward appearance, especially cars, that mm-hmm. you had to make these moves for, for all those reasons and that pressure from your parents. So that's really interesting. Yeah, and it, and it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't pressure from my parents, but it was one of those things where um, there's no such thing as extra money. So when you're able yeah. to send money home, like my father borrowed from his 401k to pay for my undergrad. So if you're able, you know, and I was like 40 grand, um, but if you're able to send home, you know, six hundred and seven hundred dollars a month, that's a that's a game changer. Yeah. Um, and the 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 finances of it, you know, I was a teacher who was very serious about my craft. I was one of the um, first people in the building, one of the last people out of the building. I spent all of my planning periods in other teachers' classrooms. I asked questions like, why is this like this? Why is this like this? um, And when you are serious about your craft as a male and when you get your honey, when you get your money, it's Mm -hmm. very easy to get pushed towards administration because people see you as being a, just a leader, right? Um, so, you know, I didn't just say, man, let me get this money. People were pushing me in that direction as, as well, particularly um, when I went to the private school. Like there was just a lot of opportunities. Of, there was just all of these gaps that we had because we were undersourced, underfunded, undermanned, underprofessionalized. And there were just a lot of opportunities for me to um, fill in gaps in certain places in terms of what we needed as a as a staff, and that kind of shaped the way I thought about organizational behavior, and shaped the way I thought about um, training teachers, and shaped the way I thought about budgets, um, because that's one of the hardest things when you move into administration. It's like, okay, you're going to take money from someplace to, to do something else. So, um, I thought I was ready. Um, but no one tells you that just because you're like a really dope teacher that, um, it has absolutely nothing to do with being an even okay administrator. Those are two those are two separate things. No one tells you that. Um, it's like, oh, he's a great offensive coordinator. That doesn't mean he can be a head coach. That's right. right. This is, he's a great salesman. 
doesn't mean he can be a vice president of supply chain. Those are, right? Like the things that got you to where you are at this level um, require a different skill set when you're managing um, and responsible for other people and evaluating other people. It's completely different ball games. Yeah, so. it's interesting that you, I'm glad you talked about like um, men being in administrative roles because just reflecting back on my own career in teaching, I had four male principals and one female principal. And, and there were so many men in like the, um, like, I don't wanna say main office, but like in the, whatever they call it, downtown, some people call it, or like central the- Central office. Central, thank you so much. Central office and so many women in classrooms, mm -hmm. right? And that was always this conversation that men just seem to move up so much more quickly than women in the district where I worked. So mm -hmm. that that's, I'm glad we we're talking about that. Well, America is a sexist country. And even though, um, and Kevin, you made a note, you sh I should know the numbers because I've researched them, but like 80% of the people in K-12 are women. Mm -hmm. I believe 53 or 54% of administrators are men. Yep, yep. Those numbers might be off, but um, I'm, I'm doing some, well, I had been conducting research for the second edition at a burning house, but those numbers are probably off, but that's, national, that's the National Center for Educational Statistics. Mm -hmm. So we still have um, an imbalance or a glass ceiling of women not being able to move into um, administrative roles, despite um, the sheer numbers that they represent in classroom positions. Yeah. Right, right now, what I see is 76% uh, of public school teachers are female. We're female, 24% male. And this is 2017, 2018 school year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then uh, with the lower percentage of male teachers at the elementary school level, 11% versus at the secondary school level, is 36%, which 36%. is what you see, right? In right. Middle the more school. prestigious education gets, the more male it gets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or the, the less opportunities to yep. change change diapers and, yep. Yep. and work yep. with young children. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So when 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 I hear your story, Desmond, I, I always think about like um, you know, and I think the 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 money aspect is always you know i think it matters i think it matters to us as black professionals you know and i love when we think about like who we go to school with and the work that we did because we're taught you know i think in our community that this work is going to equate to uh a better a betterment for our families you know that that's like the real reason why we do it let's be honest right mm -hmm. but like when when did you have any kind of, uh, you know, this this thing that we hear about on the um, the exit interview is I'm leaving my kids, right? I'm leaving these kids behind who need me. And as a special educator, as a black special educator, black male, you know, uh, we know what the situation is. How did how did you deal with those types of that those types of feelings and that process? You know what I mean? And, and what do you think about that 
those types of thoughts and attitudes when it comes to making these transitions? Man, that's a good question. My, my first year teaching, um, I had a student by the name of Antonio Wynn, and I can say his name because he's like 30 now. Yes, but, um, blessings, blessings. I remember we uh, came back after spring break and um, like I was a resource teacher, so I had to go to regular ed classrooms to pick up my students. Yep. And uh, he was in third grade. He was in Miss L. Brown's class. I will never forget Laverne Brown um, because she was my mentor teacher. But I went to pick up um, Antoine and Juwan and this other kid named Joseph Anderson. And uh, Joseph and um, Juwan came to the door. And I was like, where is, uh, where is, where's Antonio? And Joseph was like, Miss Brown said he don't go here anymore. And I was like, Miss Brown, what's, what's up? She was like, baby, he gone. Miss, uh, she was like, yeah, Miss Murchison told me this morning that they moved over, over spring break. And I was like, but dog, that's like DMX said, that's my man. Like, mm-hmm. she was like, baby, he gone. And Miss L. Brown was, I was 25. Miss L. Brown was probably 60, right? just like hardcore, like finished undergrad, went into teaching, right? Um, like 30, she was like, if you stay in the game long enough, you're gonna lose kids, right? And uh, she was like, if you stay in the game long enough, you're gonna teach your kids kids. Like that's just part of the game. And I was like, well, what's gonna happen to him? She was like, baby. And she said this in front of all her third grade class. Yeah. She was like, baby, he gonna get another teacher. And I never, they did, that didn't mean anything at the time, but her words stuck with me because she was teaching me how to be a professional. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to answer your question directly, Kevin, I have never um, not considered my students and their families in the moves that I've made professionally. Yep. But I also, what, I also remember what Ms. L. Brown taught me in terms of if you make decisions like that, you won't make the, de- de- the decision that's best for you. And ultimately um, you have to remain responsible for yourself. And I, I think of that as a, a single male who didn't have any family in Washington DC mm-hmm. versus really embracing that once you become a married man and have children, on, children of your yep. own. Yep. Right. Um, your family becomes the, the the priority because um, you know that's just the way things are. But you know, I I had some amazing relationships with with students. I think kind of as we right kind of move towards the early two thousand and tens and things like that. Social media makes um, the opportunity to maintain those relationships um, even easier particularly mm-hmm. with the younger students, you can connect with families and, and things like that. If you're someone who works with high school, you know, it's, it's just kind of easy. Like, yep. here's my phone number, call me, I'll email your mom and, you know, we can go to a Georgetown game or something like that on a weekend. But with, with the younger children, you know, connecting with families through social media, those things are, are important. But ultimately, um, not to beat a dead horse, it's something that I considered, but it wasn't a major factor 
um, to the degree that I, I have seen, um, like I've had to force people as an administrator to take the next step because they were worried about their relay for the, and let me tell a quick story. Um, one of my teachers got an opportunity to work at a prestigious um, private independent school in Miami. And she was thinking about staying because her, what her rationale was, well, but we're really starting to get somewhere and their progress in math. And I just looked at her, I said, girl, I'm gonna find somebody to replace you. Like, we're gonna find a math teacher. Like, move to Miami, right? You'll be closer to your family. They're gonna pay you $20,000 that I cannot match. Go ahead and make that move. So I have um, seen people stay in places too long for reasons that, um, that I think, you know, could be justified, but at the same time, they could be easily as justified in, in making those moves. And that, that's kind of how I approached it, going back to what Ms. L. Brown said. I feel like you're singing Asia's uh, hymn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, I don't know, and, and this is, so I don't know how much you have a chance to listen to the exit interview, but we talk a lot about racial battle fatigue. Mm -hmm and how educators experience racial battle fatigue. Um, typically it's been around like white administrators, the system itself, um, white parents, uh, colleagues and things like that. But in a place like DC where the demographic is uh, much more diverse, did you experience any racial battle fatigue as you were going through the systems? Or not going through the system, but like teaching and the administration being, um, in those different offices and spaces? So um, that's a tough question because, so let me go, take us a little bit outside of the box here. Um, like would we think a Marcus Garvey or a Harriet Tubman suffered racial battle fatigue? Mm. Like, I don't, um, I don't, I've always worked in the hood and there have been white teachers in the hood, but I've never worked with a white administrator. So let me say that off the top. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways I would argue um, you don't need to because um, part of the system or part of the genius of white supremacy as a system is that it doesn't need white people in place in order for, for the system to run efficiently. That's right. And in, in fact, um, I was listening to staff members at a school have an argument over this notion of exposure in their ELA curriculum. This is at a middle school. And the only white person on the call was saying that the kid, kids definitely should um, read Tennessee Williams um, so that they can be exposed. And I hate that E word because ultimately what that conversation, what that phrase is saying 
is that um, black people have to be exposed to what white people know in order to be validated by a system of white supremacy. And when you look at the inverse, um, a middle-class white school um, in the suburbs, you don't have white teachers saying, you know what, I think our kids have to read some Christopher Paul Curtis so mm -hmm. they could be exposed yep. to the African-American experience. It's, it's not a, they don't talk like that. Yep. So um, I say all of that to say, if there was any fatigue from racism, it was because of how the system operates and how it grinds against um, African-Americans seeking a freedom that solves white supremacy, right? I talk a lot about in the book, this notion of what do black people want from education? Do they want access to a middle, to a middle-class lifestyle or do they want to end white supremacy? Because you're going to have two different educational paths. You're going to have very different curriculums based on what you want your outcomes to be. So I would never say that I left a school or left teaching because of racism. Because um, as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad said about this notion of Black people separating, it was like, where are you going to go where white people are not in control? Mm -hmm. So like, I would, I would ask your folk who, who've been on the show, if they left, um, like, where did they go and not experience racism? Like one of my heroes, um, who I think everybody should read, his gentleman is, uh, his name is Neely Fuller. And um, not to go too deep, but he was a, um, he was a colleague of Dr. Francis Creswell-Singh. Um, and he was the first person who she heard say that racism is a system. And he said it operates in economics, education, entertainment, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war, all areas of human activity. So like, is the racism more palatable at this school? Mm -hmm. like, 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 I don't know. Um, so that's, that's not why I got out the game. And I, I, I can't be who my heroes are, but like, like what stopped Harriet Tubman from making a quote unquote 20th trip? They say she didn't make 19 trips, but let's just say for the sake of this conversation, she did. Did she say, what the fuck with this racial battle fatigue? I'm not making this trip. I don't, <laughs> I don't buy it. I don't, I don't, I don't buy that. Um, maybe I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. but that's not that's not my narrative it's not my narrative if we had time i would love to talk about that point because you asked a great question like where did they go right and we can talk on and on about like the folks in season one and even my own story about where did i go when mm -hmm. i left the classroom the traditional classroom um <laughs> And to just make it really short, super, super short, I don't think there's any like running away from racism. It's foolish to believe that. In my mind, it's the turning it down, the volume down from 100 to 99. Mm -hmm. And if I, can just, if I can just function at 99 on the volume of white supremacy by mm -hmm. whatever that looks like, 
um, then I'll take that that notch down one. But there's never ever going to be. I don't feel like people believe this, and we should ask that question, Kevin. But I don't think that folks in our that have come to our podcast and talked about where they are now have ever said. And now I never experienced racism related stress or racial battle because, like you said, that's that's like foolish to believe, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Um, um, so yeah, um, but you did leave education or traditional classroom and administration, and we're going to talk about that mm-hmm. after our break. So we'll stop here, and then we'll come back in a few minutes. Okay. Hello, listener. If you've made it this far into the episode, perhaps you are enjoying this remix conversation about power, culture, and education. And if that's the case, please consider joining others like you, educators, community leaders, activists, scholars, artists, and youth by supporting the Two Dope Teachers in a Mic podcast and productions on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you can get on-air shout-outs, sneak previews, and early released episodes, insider information on the happenings in Two Dope Nations, and many other small benefits. The greatest benefit, though, is you enable us to keep bringing the fire. Because of people like you, we have expanded to two podcasts with the exit interview taking flight and forcing hard conversations about attacks on black educators. And we've added new features, including episode transcripts and a revamped website, all because of listeners like you. But that's just the beginning. Your support will open up new possibilities for us and for the communities we represent and advocate for. And at the $15 per month level, you receive a sticker. Yes, folks, a sticker. To support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash 2dopeteachers. That's patreon.com slash 2dopeteachers. We are back here with the amazing Desmond Williams. Um, and so we are going to continue on with his exit interview. Um, Desmond, so so you've told us so far about how you got into education, that kind of movement, um, your some of your experiences, and then you know that movement from out of the classroom into administration. So so tell us about like where you're at right now and what you're doing and 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 how you're approaching being an, a black educator. Yeah, so um, I literally. Um, in 2016, I left the classroom to become an administrator um, at a school that I was teaching at. I was um, at an all boys school in a district. I had taught there for four years and I moved into administration and I really wasn't um, very interested in going back into administration. I was um, in 2011, I was uh, working as a, an administrator at a charter school and I was fired after working. I was, I started um, July 5th, right? Um, at the turn of the new fiscal year. And I was working as an assistant principal and myself and my principal were terminated together um, right before Christmas break. So I went back into, um, which is an entirely different story but I went back into the classroom, um, fell in love with um, teaching quote unquote regular ed students, um, 
and then was asked to move back into administration um, at that same school. And administration was not something I really wanted. Um, but I think for me, the, the leaving um, traditional K-12 was about betting on myself. Um, and we, we talked about this, Kevin, on the on a podcast. I told the board, I told my boss that if you pull me out of the classroom, like I had made my classroom a demonstration space for educating black boys. And I was gonna um, replicate that throughout the entire building. Mm-hmm. I was gonna turn it into a demonstration school for black boys. And for the most part, I did that. I turned it into a school with boys, um, to a school for boys, and then more specifically turned it into a school for black boys. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had pretty much reached my ceiling in terms of what I can do there. And I, you know, we talk about racial battle fatigue, like we could have an extended conversation about what it's like to run a school with all black boys to have a staff of 23 and have 17 of those uh, staff members be black males. Yes. Like there's a, I mean, you talk about, um, because I was hell bent on doing that because I thought about um, what they might not get in other places mm-hmm. and how um, we don't think of black men as being diverse and giving our boys the opportunity to figure out something that I didn't figure out until undergrad. Mm-hmm. And that was that black men are very diverse and you can take any um, homogeneous group and they're very diverse That's right. you really look. So um, that was um, a labor of love um, because we got some stuff with us as black men when we come into, <laughs> when we come into educational space. That's right. Um, and I mean, and I mean that in a good way, but for me, um, it was about, I have reached my ceiling here and I think I can, I think I can bet on myself in terms of moving into, um, in terms of moving into consulting and bottling all of my experiences and using those experiences and leveraging those experiences to help um, other schools. So for me, it was about, um, it was about impact. It was about family. Um, When I left um, K-12 at the time, we had, my wife and I, we had just had our um, second child. She was born in May and I walked out the door. Well, I kind of had walked out the door in February Um, but I officially walked out the door. Um, like I had made the decision in like March. Mm -hmm. Um, but I walked out the door July, June 30th, if you will. Um, but for me, it was, um, I think I can, I think I can bet on myself and I didn't know if I would have a better experience professionally than I had there. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe I could, I don't know, but the impact, the leverage, the work-life balance was a real, were, were things that we just had to have. Um, yeah. 
because you're talking about a young couple with a four-year-old, I'm sorry, a two, a three-year-old and a two-month-old. Like, how do you balance those things out? Very real. Very yeah. real. I have a question about that. So um, one of the questions we like to ask folks is like, how did family respond, cope, support you in that decision? And so you mentioned being married, having two small children. What was that conversation like with your wife when you said February or probably way before February, like, I think the next move is this. Like, what was that? I see you shaking your head. <laughs> what was that like? So or describe that to us. Um. There's some pain points there that I don't know if I'll, I'll really want to go into, but I will say That's this. Um, I think I'm pretty good at being married, but don't do what I did because I told my wife weeks leading up to my leaving, like I was getting contracts <laughs> behind the scenes and um, like she, there was some dysfunction between myself and my assistant principal and, and she thought it was that. Um, but it, but it really wasn't. It's, it's, it's literally, um, and I think we said this on the initial podcast, Kevin, like, uh, you kind of have to get out of the boat if you're going to walk on water. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I thought it was something I can do. And it's, it's been some really rough, rough waters. Let me, let me say that. And uh, St. Peter has drowned a few times, right? There's, there's that, but um, you know, ultimately my wife has been very supportive of not having autonomy. And I think that's the great thing about being a teacher. You get that autonomy. But um, yeah, I, I, I would say don't, to your listeners, don't do what I did because I had made the decision. And can I tell a story that falls in with racial battle fatigue? Can I tell a story? Of course. Yeah, we love stories on this, on the this podcast, right, Kevin? So I was in um, my leadership team meeting and I used a... Um, the word my purposefully because these are my department heads and um, our outplacement specialist slash music teacher slash um, he wore a lot of hats because he just made up stuff for him to do which was pretty positive for the most part right but um, he came up with this great idea he said you know we need a um, we need a logo for the school. So in this meeting, we decided that the kids would have a art contest and they would vote on the best piece of artwork to be the logo. School's nickname was the Kings. Mind you, I had taught um, the sixth graders at the school, the fifth graders at the school, the fourth graders at the school, um, I had thought, taught those three cohorts. That's almost half of the school. And, you know, I keeps it bliggity, 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 bliggity black, like all black everything, right? Like 
blacker than black because I'm black, y'all. Because <laughs> I'm black, y'all. Like, like even the tips on the, the tips of the shoestrings was black. Like that's right. Black. That's right. That's right. So one of our kids, I'm sorry, two of our kids came together and they created a um a pharaoh on a chariot pulling a horse. I love that. So a few weeks later, we're back in my meeting and my music teacher is in the meeting. She was like, and she's proud. She's like, um, Mr. Scott, this is the, this is the logo they created. And Mr. Scott is a music teacher slash outplacement specialist. My director of development who doesn't report to me, he reports to the head of school. Um, so in that sense, we're equal, like he keeps the lights on. And he said, um, what is that? Like mm -hmm. white guy, like Wolf, on, Wolf of Wall Street, like just go get money, like that kind of a guy, right? And um, she said, yeah, this is the logo that the kids created. So I looked at it and I said, oh, that's dope. And Mr. Scott says, um, and Mr. Scott, few years older than me, Morehouse grad, and I'm purposely saying his name because you have to own the things you do, whether they're good and bad. His That's name right. is Herb Scott. He said, I can't do anything with that. And I was like, what's wrong with it? And he said, I mean, that's Egyptian. He's like, it's too ethnic. And I said, well, I don't know about ethnic, but that is what our kids think of when they think of a king. And that is what they think of when they think of themselves because their parents gave that to them. And I reinforced it through the ELA and social studies curriculum that took me two summers to write. Yeah. He was like, I'm, he was like we can't do anything with that. And then the director of development, his name is David Shepard. He's gonna own it too because he is racist says, um, I don't know if I can get donors to give to the school if they see that. We can't put that on letterhead. And I said, your job is to raise the money. It's my job to deal with the programming that happens in the school. If you can't do that, you need to get new donors or you get to, you get to go job hunting and freshen up your resume. So my boss, who is the head of school, um, was not in that meeting. The head of um, the direct, director of development and um, music teacher slash outplacement people say, Mr. Williams is not really thinking about the best interest of the school. Um, oh, wow. He's not being political. Da 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 da, like political as a, as a loaded term. Yep. Mm -hmm. And um, I said to, so this comes to me from my boss, like the four of us didn't sit down and have this conversation. And I said to my boss, I was like, three years right? right he was going to do three years and he was going to retire so the plan was for us to walk out the door yeah. together 
but what I what I said to him was like how how can you feel comfortable with a um, director of development who doesn't believe in a racial pride of our people like how does he get to have a job here if he doesn't believe in what we're doing like by definition he's using this place as a stepping stone yeah. like the things I was like teaching our kids to love themselves is no different than teaching them four plus four equals eight he doesn't believe it's necessary for us to teach our kids four plus four equals eight mm. and I could just see my boss um who is a black man who I love and respect and adore to this day, I could see the discomfort in his face. Like the, a decision was gonna have to be made. And I, I just said to myself, you know what? I, I can bet on myself. So William Smith might call that racial battle fatigue, but I, I just call that um, knowing that we had some amazing relationships over that time and we did some amazing things in the six years I was there. Um, we were able to touch and help a lot of families. Um, I have three teachers on that staff who are assistant principals now. Mm -hmm. um, all of which who left after I left, which kind of sucked. But um, just knowing when your time is done someplace um, and, and thinking that I would not be able to match that experience someplace else. So, you know, ultimately that was my foray to, to go and, 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 and bet on myself and, and get out the boat, um, if, if you will. But there were a lot of other things that were happening. Like when you talk about a straw, maybe, maybe that was a straw, but at other points I was just like, man, it would be dope if, we could just get money to go on like a civil rights tour. Yeah. Or it would be dope if we could. And, um, you know, I, I just thought that um, there was more that, there was some more that could have been done, but um, I didn't know if I was the person to lead us mm. there. And, and, and that's why I decided to, to walk away. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. And I guess, you know, and you you said, I don't know if Dr. Smith would say it is, but really we get to say what it is and what it isn't, right? What racial battle fatigue is or isn't. Yeah, I say you that tongue-in-cheek. It, it's not racial battle fatigue. That's just, like, how would you, like, if I had wanted to stay, like, how would I confront that? Yeah, for sure. You no, know? because... I pushed that logo. <laughs> I pushed that logo. I don't know what they did. It's been almost four years. Yeah. But I was like, oh no. That's the logo. That's you know it. And if it's not gonna be, I'm gonna terminate you. But before I do, you're gonna go in front of the student body and say why what the kids had already voted on doesn't get to be what students voted on. You go tell them. And then, Do you think that, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry. To cut no, you go off. ahead. Do I you, was going to so, so yeah, cut me off. 
So that I think this is an interesting piece. It's like that around power, right? And like you, like you just said, and I'm going to terminate you and I'm going to do, you're going to do X, Y, and Z before that happens. And so just thinking about some folks that have come on here who just, and their belief, they may have, but just didn't realize it, didn't utilize it. And their belief didn't have the power to do anything more than just except for the time being, strategize to leave and then to leave, right? And so I think, and I'm not, I can't, I'm not jumping into anybody's head or anybody else's story, but mm -hmm. I think it's important to recognize that that being able to be in an administrator role for some folks could have been, could have changed the path in which they went, right? Um, for you, you said, I bet on myself, you had done all these great things in the school and for years before that. And I just think about like how many of our black educators across the United States and uh, beyond, if they had had administrative roles, would that have made a difference? In some cases, I'm thinking not. And in some, piece, in some cases, I'm thinking so, but it's just hard to know, I guess. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's hard to know that. So can I, can I tell you a realization that I had when I first became a principal, I took over as a principal of a school in April of 2008. That was like probably in the history of mankind, one of the most glorious times. And I don't know if there was ever a time, easier time to be a black man in America. What I figured out that first full year being an administrator is, yo, you work for everyone in the building. You work for the custodians. You work for the landscapers. You work for your teacher's aides, your teachers, your students, the cafeteria workers, both nurses, right? You work for everyone. The, it, it, it may have seemed like a power trip to say I was gonna terminate him, but hey, that's not true. I'm saying that tongue in cheek. I was taken aback at the amount of power I didn't have to the degree that I was um, a buffer between the staff that I had to protect and the minutia from the people who work on top of me. And it was like, you gotta protect these people quote unquote underneath you because the winds and the whimsicalness of what comes from up here will drive your teachers and the people in the classroom <laughs> and in your building crazy. Sure. So that was very fatiguing and learning how to do that and build a culture because the culture of this particular school was broken. This, the morale was very low. I took over in April and we had a student who, um, who passed away um, right before the holiday season. So it was mm -hmm. just a very um, somber and solemn piece, like trying to juggle, building people up, you know, starting afresh, um, creating a culture, starting afresh, but still maintaining a level of accountability and then the protection. Um, 
but it, it's really been like that. Um, at the other two schools I was an administrator at as well, not necessarily the cultural aspects, but that bufferismness. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I think individually, your your guests will have to answer that. Um, but the families of your staff become they become your children because if a staff member can't come to work, um, you know you're paying for a substitute. Um, you hear the stories of, you know, my grandmother um, has cancer and we think she has a week to live. And you, you know, you don't think of that transactionally as I have to find a sub, you, you feel for those people. So um, the, the wear and tear emotionally um, is, is a real thing. And I think you find yourself um, being more in service, at least I found myself being more in service and being more emotionally attached to people once I moved into administration to the degree that um, I don't necessarily think I had more power. Um, there was just certain things I could do, um, like change curriculums, right? or call this person in to do a PD. Um, there, obviously there's some things you can do, but other things um, got in the way of, oh, I can have this person come in and do a PD, or I can do this curriculum. There, there's, there's some give and take there. Yeah. Thanks for that. So I guess we're at our last question, which um, is, what are you doing now? You talked about leaving, talked about telling your wife, but not really, but kind of, <laughs> right? Telling my wife, um, but not really, but kind of. That's but that, was, that was it. <laughs> yeah. So, like four years out of the traditional classroom space, mm -hmm. tell us what you're up to. You mentioned kind of in the beginning, you hinted around at a book, you've mm -hmm. talked about consulting. So, we'd love to hear about all of that, please. Yeah. So, I am. Uh, the, the founder of Nylinka School Solutions. Before I got on the phone with, phone with you all, I was uh, on the phone with my web developer. We're launching a new website, hopefully like at midnight tonight. There we go. Um, Nylinka is dedicated to helping our most marginalized students have the school experiences that they deserve. Yes. Um, our focus is on um, strategic planning, um, but more so than that, the execution of our plans to help schools be the schools they need to be, to help districts be what they need to be in order to support um, said marginalized groups. Um, so, you know, professional development, um, focusing on differentiation, reading instruction, restorative practices um, are kind of some of the main components. Um, and with that, um, we get to lift up the hood and, and talk about what's happening with black and brown boys um, and what's happening with our sped populations because those are the groups that tend to not, let me restate that. Statistically, those are the groups that um, perform the worst academically and socially. So, um, how do we help and support those groups? Um, I'm in the process of publishing 
a second edition of the Burning House, Educating Black Boys in Modern America. Um, if you go to the website, you can purchase the book. Well, depending, um, you can pre-order it now. The book um, will be available on February 28th, but you can pre-order the second edition. The first edition is available now. Um, and you can purchase that on the website or on Amazon. So we're just um, trying to make school spaces um, better for all children. Um, so this, again, this idea of working in a system to um, break it. Yes, ultimately, yes. Ultimately to, to break it. I, I think we're, um, one of the things that I really want to do, we were talking about this notion of black male educators. I think we have to create, um, because I don't know what public school is going to look like with COVID in yep. four years versus 10 years. And I, I sincerely believe that we need a national union for black male educators um, so that we can leverage our collective power um, to get more money to be in these schools. Meaning if you're part of a union and you work here for 85 grand, yes. why wouldn't you go and work here as part of this union because we know where the openings and, and the vacancies are and we're gonna negotiate on your behalf and we can get you 102K to work here. Um, I think that's kind of where my mind is around how do we keep people in spaces because in schools, because again, white women, Asian women, uh, Latinx women, everyone's, everyone's leaving the profession um, in, in record numbers. Um, and, and people in record numbers are just leaving um, all kinds of occupations in general. So like, how do we keep the people who wanna be there? And I, you know, I think there's some things that can be done, but um, COVID is a monster. So you have, we have to be out thinking outside of the box in order to make it happen. So that's a, a pet project that I would like to be a part of. I just can't spearhead it myself, right? I don't know the first thing about unions. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah, it's hard. And, and I, I will say as a person who's a part of my union and mm -hmm. on our bargaining team right now, somehow ended up there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think it's, we need more black faces in these white spaces, you wow. know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Because this, these, are, these are places that historically have denied us access, right? We, we, we were not allowed into unions. And uh, I think we need our voice to be heard. So uh, yes, I, I as much as I find out, I will I will pass it on down the down, yeah, the, let's, down the line. But let's let's talk. It's not something that I can do, but I. It's an important part of it all. It's an yeah. important part of it all. Like I, I just think we have to um, think differently. Like there's so much opportunity because of COVID. And, you know, power hates a vacuum, right? Um, someone is going to fill those vacancies as yeah. we leave. And if they're not qualified, if they're not caring, then what, what would that mean for our children and children who look like us? Because ultimately this is about the service of our, of our children. And um, again, educating our children 
and our people enough where we can create a world without white supremacy. Mm. Yeah. I would, I want to say shout out to Dr. Antoine Jefferson, who um, I've been in his classes several times over the last couple of semesters. And he always asked the question of like, what does liberation look like? Mm -hmm. Like, what does a liberatory education look like? What does liberatory schooling look like? And like every semester, we never have an answer. Mm. I don't think, I don't know. And I don't know why. Maybe because I've never seen it, right? Maybe because it, I don't know. But We don't yeah, know what so. it looks like. It, it's, it's like talking about the other side. You know, we, we don't know. We have faith. We will get there. But we don't know what it looks like. We just know that it's something different than what we deal with every day today. Yeah. Dr. Jefferson would say, when people say we will get there, he'd say, where is there? I'm like, damn, Dr. J, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this idea of, of we have to close up the show. We'll be talking all day about <laughs> the Julian idea. But I do want to say, I read this book one time called The Miseducation of Horace Tate. Mm -hmm. And yes. it talks about, have you read that book? Dr. Walker. But, yes. Yes. And it, just that idea of like black unions, teacher unions, and all the fight, right? And then just for like NEA to just take over everything, just wipe everything out. And that the, the fight in him, the fight in all those black educators who said like desegregation is going to ruin us, right? Um, and it did. It and did. It did. <laughs> it it did. You heard you heard black education by desegregating schools. Yeah. I'll always believe that. I know yeah, so. I know we have to go, but there is um Dr. Leslie Fenwick at Howard has done a lot of work um along with Vanessa Siddle Walker. Um she has a, a series of articles called Jim Crow's Pink Slip that mm. talks about um integration of uh public schools and how it hurt black teachers and black administrators. And um, yeah, it's a, I think it's a story that um, we're starting to appreciate more. Yeah. Um, so yeah. 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 All right. Well, I could go into that too, but then I'll shut my lips. I did, we'll have to invite you back to come yes. and chit chat with us. Yes. For sure, we had some, on the break, we had some good discussion that we didn't get to. Um, but like, we want to thank you, uh, Desmond, so much for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed it. I know Kevin's enjoyed it because he invited you back. So that's right. Um, that's right. Yes. So, um, can you just for for our our guests who might be driving when they hear this, spell out your website, um, so they can know where to find you. And if you're on Instagram right. or Facebook or something, can you put that out there, and then we'll close up the show. Sure. The um, company website. Well, my name is Desmond Williams again. Um, Sister Asia, Brother Kevin, Brother Gerardo, thank you all for having me. Y'all know I talk too much. Uh, we um, love it. We love it. So I, I Ain't it. no way a Black I can talk too much. Amen. <laughs> Unless we talk to the government. <laughs> right. Come on now. Um, but I, I thank you all for having me. My website is um, nylinka.org. That's N-Y um, as in New York. L I N as in Nancy K-A, nylinka.org. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at nylinka, N-Y-L-I-N-K-A. And you can find me on LinkedIn at Desmond Williams. 
if you want to purchase the book, The Burning House, it's on the website. You can go to the uh, the products tab. It's um, what's today, the 23rd. It should be up yes, sir. within the next couple of hours. But um, you can pre-order the second edition. And um, I, I delve into um, the biggest difference between the first and the second edition is this notion of, of reading instruction. And I take us on a history um, lesson um, about the beginnings of, of African-Americans not being able to read in this country. Hmm. Um, so I'm very proud of the work. Um, I thank the people who supported me when I was on the show. Um, Kevin, I don't, I, I don't know how big your audience is, but some of my book sales on Amazon shot up. That's what's so, up. Um, That's what's up. That's what's up. So, so thank so you. So get the second edition, people. If you haven't gotten the first, get the get the second. Let's mm-hmm. let's make this happen and reach out to Nylinka. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, let let let's put our money where our mouths are because we hear a lot of. You know, I, I sit in a lot of uh, every year at the beginning of school and we come back from a break, you know, people are talking about how we, we, we are trying to uh, get the voices of black educators and, and really meet the needs of black students. And uh, and so I think Nyalinka, all the consulting agencies, if you aren't using the consulting agencies that you hear about on the uh, exit interview. What are you even doing? What are you even doing, white folks? What are y'all doing? So that's all I have to say. (laughs) Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate those words, Kev. I appreciate it. We love you. We love you, brother. We love you. Love you guys too, man. Well, that's been another wonderful episode of the exit interview season two. Uh, Hope to have you all come back again, listen to another black educator share their experience have a great evening for asia and kevin kevin you doing I, I froze i my my internet is going bad the sun's down dude so you would know how it is we know how it is in a black neighborhood mercury and retro we'll paint this again what we're signing out y'all have a good night bad love bad love thank you guys for coming out thanks for having me